Welcome to Percussion Perspectives, a podcast by Henrik Knabor Larsen and Håkon Steinen. Each episode of Percussion Perspectives features one or more musical artists in conversation about musical education, practice and aesthetic and sociological perspectives. Welcome to this episode where I talk to the famous Danish sound artist Christian Winfeldt, uh, who happens to also be my colleague at the Royal Academy of Music in Aarhus. We talk about his career plan, his approach to life and music, and also artistic entrepreneurship and artistic citizenship. And in the very end, you will get the secret of how to become great at performance. So, hello, Christian, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Henrik. So glad to be on. And yeah, thank you for the invitation. My name is Christian Winfeldt. I am uh, a percussionist and a composer and improviser, and I also work with uh, sound art. And I happen to uh, be uh, your colleague also at the Royal Academy of Music in Aarhus, where uh, I do many things, but uh, mainly teach uh, artistic entrepreneurship. Cool. And... Um... You started out uh, from your very young years to uh, to make. I know you were playing chess, by the way, before all of this. But but at a certain moment, you decided to do a career. Can you it's, tell a little about that that beginning? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's true. I, I was uh, a little bit of a of a chess prodigy when I was very young, and I I managed to become a national champion chess champion in my age group when I was 12, I think. Uh, and, you know, chess was very serious for me, uh, but it also became too serious at some point. And um, that really destroyed the chess for me. But uh, I was afraid the same thing would happen to music because I also started music around, well, around that time, actually, when I was 11 or 12, so I started uh, uh, playing drums. Um, and um, yeah it was it, it was a long journey and a, a, so much back and forth flirting with should i do this more uh, seriously but at, at the same time ha- having this bad experience from the from the chess earlier on that something i really loved got destroyed when it got too seriously so uh, so that dilemma stuck with me for a long time but um Yeah, I mean, at some point when I when I did this preparatory uh, course for for the music conservatory, um, I I had a good conversation with a friend of mine that was a little bit uh, older than me, and and he told me he just did his first uh, career plan, and I was I was amazed to hear that because I thought he was such a profound musician. Why would he engage in this? commercializing sellout (laughs) that a career plan was to me at that time you know basically trying to 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 negotiate all these other aspects than just the core playing music but talking to him I realized that it was it was really not something that was in opposition to quote-unquote just playing or the core thing it was really a way um to to bring out the core uh, in you and in your musicianship and actually to make sure that it didn't be, uh, that you were on track so to speak that you didn't lose contact to your core values in my case it was a great tool because it gave me 
yeah, a very concrete tool to stay on track with, with uh, what I wanted and what I love and not falling into my chess uh, career, my, early, uh, my earlier experiences um, of, of uh, having, um, you know, losing the joy or the passion for something because it got too serious. So I so, sat down and made a career plan. So I'm curious, of course, what, what did you write in your first career plan? Oh, it was very cute, Henrik. <laughs> too, bad, <laughs> too bad I can't show it here. But, uh, you know, I wrote stuff like I tried basically just to figure out what was I good at? What was I not so good at? What, what you know, where did I feel that I really had something to bring to the music? When, when, when were these situations? When did it happen? Uh, and I also tried to set some some guidelines for, uh, you know, the terms and conditions for the life with music that I wanted to have. And it really was, you know, yes, I say quite cute because it was about, um, you know, I, I wanted to travel with music. I wanted to only do music where I felt, uh, you know, where it was meaningful, where I had something to offer. I didn't want to compromise with, uh, who I am and what I had to bring. And, you know, it, it was something that's in a way quite fluffy, <laughs> but to me seemed concrete because it was, yeah, my core values. I kind of, I knew what that was, even though it's an, it's, it's an ever changing thing. The core of that is still the same. And I, I really do still check in on that. My base, my first career plan that I made when I was 17 or 18. So it seems from, from our perspective now, uh, offering artistic entrepreneurship to, to the students in a quite a high level of, of their studies, it seems very mature that you already at this state was thinking about your values and what what you wanted to, to do with the music. But do, do you think that uh, did something special to the way you were studying? And can you tell me a little about of your, of your um, different periods in, in your study time? Mm. Good question. Uh, it definitely has something to do with my personality and also my, my upbringing, I guess, the way that I was raised, you know, raising these questions. But also, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, as I, I, I mentioned, also my previous experiences, even though I was young, I already um, experienced success and failure <laughs> in a way. So I, I had some kind of a, you know, frame of reference. Um, but I, I've always been also very much of a thinker and very, I guess, sensitive in, in the sense that uh, I needed to, you know, feel good and be, feel, feel present, I guess. And this presence is perhaps something that also resonates throughout my career because I engaged in, in types of music where presence is uh, key mainly improvisation for example to me I guess that's really what pulled me towards that um I, I at least one way of looking at it, at it is that it's you have to be extremely uh there very present and aware and honest but yeah <laughs> I guess that's why maybe also because I I at least never felt like I was a huge uh obvious talent for neither for myself for people around me so I also had to really um put a lot of work into to these aspects I guess from an early stage to really uh, organize myself to uh, 
to progress. Okay, so I, you have. I'm not sure that answers your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think it does. I was I was also curious about. I mean, when when you have students, sometimes you have students with a very clear perspective. They know exactly what they want to do, and sometimes they are maybe even too secure, and later finds out that they have other options. And but still, I mean, these very mature thoughts at an early stage. Uh, do you think it's? I mean, you you also traveled around and and has studied many different places and searched for for answers in in many different worlds. So maybe do you think that has something to do with your early decisions? Oh, oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, I also traveled when I was young, you know, with my family, but also on my own. And by the way, that was one of the main reasons why I decided to get more serious with music because I, I had the experiences of traveling with music, you know, going abroad, playing in other countries, also playing with foreign musicians uh, coming to Denmark. And I every, almost every time I had the experience that while wow, this really lifts it up to another level and my closest um, associates are the people I can really relate to or make uh, unique music with uh, are not necessarily the ones closest to me. It needs this broader perspective. And I also need to look at myself in that way uh, to, to develop. So yes, it, it definitely has a huge, huge impact on me. And I, I was also lucky in my early career to see um, uh, other people around me who were, you know, further ahead, my teachers, but mainly also a uh, jazz drummer called Chris Nosko, who came from the same region, who would always, you know, very often come back with all these uh, uh, international musicians. And, and uh, it was very inspiring to me to see. Uh, yeah. Great. Um, and at a certain point when you were in the soloist class at, at the Rama, you, you also took some lessons from the composition professor Nils Ronsholt. Um, did, how, how can you explain a little bit about that experience? You come from the from the jazz world and you have improvised a lot, but how was it to meet like a classical composer in that sense? Oh, it was great. Uh, the thing is, I actually never studied with Nils, but I had him as a. Uh, he was like my mentor and like close. I, it feels like studying. I would definitely say that, but it wasn't really like taking classes in composition but I discussed my compositional works with him and that continued. I mean, it, it started a little bit in the soloist class, but it was mainly after my soloist class where I got this free year grant from, um, from the Danish Arts Council. That was like a, a international career grant called the Young Elite. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know it sounds like something straight out of <laughs> a fascist country. <laughs> anyway. It's about uh, taking your uh, a young person's uh, career uh, to an international level, and and meeting Nils uh, a classical composer or someone with that background, was was great. I mean, it was really an eye opener for me and, and helped me make some even more, what I would call extreme decisions about my work, looking at what I did as uh, pieces rather than you know, the, uh, uh, just, you know, the improvisation that's there and then it's gonna.
it was great meeting Niels, someone who uh, has a background as a you know in the classical com composed music because he helped me look at my work um, more as pieces than than these. Um, that was a, a different aspect, you know, that you have this concrete thing that you build and everything in it is a part of the composition, where it is, how you, you know, how you act, how you move, what you wear, the lighting, uh, the, you know, the sonority and acoustics of a place, uh, everything, like that every small choice becomes uh, a super important thought through thing that is integrated in the piece. Whereas the extreme opposite, in a way, is the random improvisation where you bring a bunch of toys and you pick up whatever and you throw it randomly at the kid, perhaps, you know, stuff like that is something that I also do and maybe did more and that I was also um, trying to, to get away from. So, so he really, uh, in a way, I felt he was someone who, who really... Uh, saw me and what I was trying to do and helped me a lot in 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 making it more clear really to myself mm. and, and thus also to be able to communicate it to others. And I mean this is the ending point or maybe just a point on the line, but you told me also uh, that you have an anecdote about why you played jazz in the beginning. What is what is the main uh, entrance to that world? <laughs> Yeah, oh, uh, it was incredible. My first teacher, I started playing, there was a marching band in the Renkubing where I grew up and my neighbor was in that band. And, you know, so uh, I had to go there and, and uh, pick up the drums. And I started playing, playing the, the, the snare drum in the marching band. And I got this teacher and he immediately saw, okay, maybe we'll split the time between uh, you know, stick control and drum set when you're here. So 10 minutes there, 10 minutes there. And I learned all these rhythms on the drum set. And then after, you know, a little while, he said, okay, now you have these basics. Let me show you something else. It's called jazz. And he sat over at the drum set and started playing. And all of a sudden he looked differently. He moved differently. And he pulled out all of these new sounds that I never heard before off the drums, instead of just, you know, hitting it in the middle and it has one sound. If you want another sound, you move on to the next drum or, you know, buy a bigger or smaller or whatever. And, you know, the richness and colors of those instruments was so mind blowing to me. And I just thought, wow, that's jazz. That's what I'm going to do. And, and I, I did it. I still do it, but I, I really did it as my main thing for many years. But to me, it wasn't so much of a, you know, it's a natural gradient or uh, what's that called? Like uh, going from one place to another, uh, moving from jazz more towards uh, more contemporary percussion approach and experimental music, because I was still basically just looking for new sounds within our instruments. And that's very intriguing and, and stimulating to me. And rather than adding more things, I, I found out that what was really interesting to me was to take things away. <laughs> so I, I, I basically started moving things away and, and developed pieces for one symbol. Or I worked a lot with just a snare drum and, and very few uh, yeah, elements and, you know, 
extended techniques and, and stuff like that. And how is it, Christian, to, to find your place in, in this world of art when, when you're moving between these different worlds that are kind of from, at least from some points of view, different things? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult for me, and I find it's also very difficult uh, for others sometimes, meaning I'll explain that. So where do I belong? You know, should you book me for a jazz festival or for a new music festival? Or how about a noise uh, festival? Or, you know, I, I've been moving through these different areas and in some environments, it's very natural that there are people coming from classical music, from the jazz slash, you know, like jazz improvised music background and uh, punk noise and electronic uh, ambient music together and that's basically a scene that's why I moved to Berlin and in uh, doing my my studies because I felt that was a very free place to be where all these things would meet and you didn't really have to explain this but you know it is difficult it is super difficult and I, I still don't really know if I belong one place or the other in my heart and that's also what I tell my students in artistic entrepreneurship that's great. Why do we need these genres? I don't need to to uh, <laughs> to um, have that label on me. But it all it is you know it's also problematic sometimes because it's not jazz enough for jazz. It's not classical enough for uh, new music. It's not you know it's mm. not punk enough for the punk scenes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so that that is an ongoing struggle, I would say. Yes. And uh, and I know you did a lot of uh, works and and interesting recordings, um, and I think also what is what is very obvious when you I watch your different uh, approaches is that you also have a clear visual aspect or a cynical, uh, not cynical but a scenic uh, <laughs> approach to your works. Uh, you use site specific elements and and all that kind of stuff, but uh, you promised me to talk a little more in depth about your method of working or what what do you do when you enter the practice room and you have to make a new composition or new work? Ooh. Yeah, uh, it's true. I've been working a lot with site-specific works. Um, and I say this because uh, but that's important to understand that it, that it is a back and forth between that space and what goes on in the, the practice room or the rehearsal space or and there's also a place in between that you know which is uh, I guess long walks with thoughts or uh, thinking about concepts or uh, you know connecting points and and, and uh, contrasting elements. Uh, what I concretely do in, in the practice room is, is again, try to move away from practicing patterns or method books or, you know, or at least distinguish between when do I do that and then when do I really work with uh, mastering elements uh, and elements of expression, I would call them, <laughs> which is inventing, you know, looking for new, well, extended techniques and sounds. And, you know, I'm, I'm constantly experimenting with that, looking for that, um, trying to, to bring them out, but also looking for um, 
I would say, um, entry points of expression, <laughs> which is really, again, this, where do I feel I have something to offer or this through this movement or through this sound, through this texture, I feel like I can really say something. And that's, I, that's what I'm using and trying to really master so that I can take those and integrate them in a space and let them interact with a space. So it, that's very important to me because I don't, I don't like the randomness of just going somewhere and doing something. That's a little bit too random for me. I mean, I also respect it, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, that's, that's maybe Nils Ransold again, or you know, this more classical compositional uh, conceptualizing uh, the, the composition that comes in there. Hmm. And let's say you you want to start these kind of uh, framed improvisations as a student. Uh, do you have any advice? How, how can you start if you're curious about this and want to integrate it into your approach? Well, first of all, I think improvisation is something that maybe especially in the academic world is... is um, we kind of expect people to either be able to do it or not. You know, it's a little bit like creativity. It's like some people are creative, others are not. And you can really, of course, practice this, rehearse this, stimulate it. It's, it, you know, there, of course, how do you practice it? Well, first of all, do it. I mean, <laughs> improvise yourself, improvise with others, and then really be critical about, am I really improvising here? You know, or am I... Uh, forcing this to go somewhere so I can show off this cool new thing that I found out. <laughs> so, so I find a good place to start is, is, uh, is integrating it in your, uh, you know, every day. Many musicians I know, they start all their rehearsal uh, or practice time by improvising. Really, that's a great place to start. And as a composer, uh, well, recorded. You would also do that as an instrumentalist, but as a composer, you would perhaps look for, you know, building blocks for a composition within that material also. Um, so that's a great place to start. I love to use a timer, simple tool, but uh, I also do it for some of my compositions to make sure that it uh, stays in one place long enough or not for too, uh, for too long also. So, so that can be a great tool for, for the, the, um, the beginner also. And what is framed improvisations? Well, it is, means everything is not open. It means setting some, some kind of framework for it. It's perhaps these free sounds that I can use and it's five minutes as an example. So that's a little exercise already. <laughs> great. Yeah, I think... When you start improvising, you have, I also started, or maybe I started out from the very beginning, you, you have an idea that, that this comes from somewhere inside yourself. Um, and in that manner, it, it becomes more real also when you have to interpret other people's work or when you are in the moment on the stage. So for, for me, it's essential, but, but I think that it's, it's something that if you don't do it, it's hard to find the outset or how to start it. So I think, I hope some of the listeners will take the chance and get out there and do, just try it out. Yeah. Uh, Look, can I add yeah. something there, Henry? Because now you say listeners, that, that is really key, I think, listening. 
it, 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 that also takes practice, doesn't it? And it, to me, it's also really the, the key in improvised music, training your listening rather than, you know, we have ear training and hearing at all the academies, but not too much training and really listening. So, uh, so, so that's really key also, I think. I mean, a great book for that is, is Pauline Oliveros' uh, Deep Listening, which is a whole system that she developed. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that that's also uh, something you can really practice on your own active listening, just really trying to, to uh, be aware of the sounds around you. Cool. So uh, finally, I think uh, I would like to talk to you a little about uh, your approach now to artistic entrepreneurship. Of course, now we talked about it in, in your own career, but you also teach this both uh, at the academy, but also in uh, in different festivals and for young artists. And um, can you say something just in general about what is this idea of artistic entrepreneurship for you? Yeah. So what it is for me rather than, um, yeah. Um, look, I think it's so important. Uh, I, at least it, I would not be where I am in my career today if that wouldn't have been an integrated part of my work as a professional. And I have to say, I was not taught this when I was studying, you know, <laughs> neither were you, but, but when we were studying, it was more like knowing the business. It's about understanding the music business. And artistic entrepreneurship is different because it's essentially about understanding yourself and the art form that you work for, the art that you work within and perhaps want to do or striving to do in relation to this music business. Then obviously that's also there, but I think that's that's the key to understand or, or at least what's key to me and that's really what I try to teach also and that's what I try to bring out and that's where it makes sense to people is my experience mm. and it, it doesn't mean that everyone working with this should become uh, you know like stellar soloists it can also mean that you become a great teacher or you know it's just connecting to um, to your values as a as a, a musician or as an artist and, and taking the responsibility to uh, nurture those and bring them out and try to, to build the, the best possible, uh, well, framework again, or a situation for you um, where that's really sustainable in the true meaning of the word, something that will last. Yes, and I think uh, the goal-driven approach that is part of most of the Western world is, is somehow opposed to the mean-driven approach to entrepreneurship, where we are examining what what do we have and how do we want to use what we already have, compared to uh, aiming for some quite unknown goals and presuming you need to do certain things to to get there. So I, I guess that it's somehow in the outset a quite artistic approach, actually. Um, I agree and. It's sometimes hard for people to understand. So now you know a little bit about my history and it sounds like, oh, when you were 18, you made this career plan and you've just been on, you know, on track since then. And it's really not the case. The, the, what, what's been on track is connecting to the values, but it's, you know, what I, the type of musician that I've 
was in, imagining that I would be back then was a New York job, you know, jazz drummer. I tried it and it was not really <laughs> where I was going to go. So it changed. So, so that's, it's true what you're saying. It's really not the goal. It's the, the means <laughs> that are, that are centered here. Let's just shortly talk about a phenomenon that that I know we use uh, here in Denmark in a certain context, and maybe it's different other places in the world. I know, especially in Great Britain, the approach is different, um, and that's the the idea of artistic citizenship. So, can you tell a little bit about how you look at that? <laughs> yeah, it's something we we've been debating a lot. In our academy, haven't we? And and in our artistic entrepreneurship classes. Um, yeah, it, it's one of those terms where I, for how I understand the core idea, I think it's great. I think, you know, all art should relate to the society it's a part of in one way or another. It can relate by being in up in opposition to it 100% and going in an extremely uh, another way, it can also relate by integrating and involving a lot of people and become almost like a social movement or that's also beautiful. For me, the core thing, what I'm trying to do with it is to talk to an artistic element in everyone an artistic core, because I believe that's present in all human beings. I also think I have experienced, I haven't met all human beings, I'll, I'll admit it here on the podcast, <laughs> but, but you know, the strongest experiences I have had with music as a performer is really when it bypasses, uh, you know, the, the, oh, you can do difficult stuff or that's complex or, and it talks from heart to heart. And I also feel then it's also beyond people uh, having to know, you know, understand what you're doing technically. And it really is, you know, your grandma can, can get deeply touched by something that she has no idea what is that you're doing. And to me, that's the core of artistic citizenship is, is to aiming for that. And you can do that in many ways. I do not necessarily think you have to, uh, to involve a lot of people and have them do it, you know, but art should be accessible for everyone and you should talk to the uh, artistic uh, core in every human being. Those two are the main things for me, if you ask of my <laughs> definition or what I, what I see in that, that uh, terminology. That 
Definitely, and I also know you as a, as a teacher who is is very good at at making the students uh, creating their own ideas and their own de- decisions. And a good example of that is the the big Rama festival we have each year, and you have been primus motor in in converting that from something the teachers were deciding about and to a student driven. Uh, festival can can you tell a little bit about that process what how do how do you do it yeah sure <laughs> yeah I, it's a that's a great con- very concrete example of uh, well artistic entrepreneurship um which was that we have this academy festival uh every year and it you know it, it was it's been going for years and years and and the public can come in and, and see concerts uh for an entire day but all the almost all of the students, you know, there were so many complaints about that festival. They didn't really feel it was representing them. They didn't really, you know, like the way it was set up, and they didn't feel like it was, yeah, representing them. And and therefore, I gave my students in artistic entrepreneurship one year uh, the task to try and reframe that, redesign it, come up with ideas, and we passed that on those ideas, that catalog, onto the leadership at our academy and, and, and they said, this sounds interesting and looks great. How about you guys organize it? And, you know, in one year or in one season, we, we changed from, as you say, this top-down uh, organized festival to becoming a student-led, student-curated and stu- student-organized uh, festival. And um, yeah, so now, now they do it and I, I am, the anchor man, so to speak, help facilitating and and back them up, and it's great because uh, it really changed the profile of the festival. It's much more uh, experimental in every way. I mean, in every genre, everybody wants to integrate much more uh, with each other. Bear in mind that our academy has everything from pop musicians to classical musicians to uh, people working with uh, sound art, electronic music. You know, all these different. Uh, genres and they're integrating much more uh, with each other now so that's how we do it we make an open call every year try to get people uh, involved in it and then they join me in a little task force and we set up the overall framework send out an open call people can apply and um, and then we built the festival from there and something that they really wanted to do the students in the previous years also this year I can say is to work with stages to make the the concert situations uh, less traditional. You know, there is less sitting in a black box or a white cube uh, on your flat ass listening to music with even respect. <laughs> you know, there's still even respect, but in a different way. Now they work with uh, visual artists and changing the whole scenography the rooms, but also working with these in-between spaces. When you move from one concert hall to another, how can we work with this space? How can we work with this um, uh, experience of being at our academy? What kind of feeling do we want people to leave with? And that is really also artistic entrepreneurship because here they test things, but they also help reframe that music business or music world that they want to enter into. They try to give, you know, their take on what it, what it should be like to be, uh, I don't know, a string quartet playing somewhere. How, how can you, you know, how can you experience that music in a, in a more contemporary way, perhaps? 
And that's beautiful. I love that. <laughs> Great. So uh, you have a new solo album out right now. Maybe it would be after this connecting to all your, your teaching and to, to talk a little bit about that. Can you say a few words about it? Sure. I have, <laughs> I have an album on the way that's, uh, it's called I Am a Deadbeat Repercussionist. And uh, uh, actually, that's a line I came up with from relating to one of your previous questions, you know, where do, you, where do I really belong? <laughs> you know, what is it that I do? Well, I am a deadbeat repercussionist. That's my title, I decided. It's, um, it, it, so here's what it is. It's uh, something that I sat down and finished during lockdown because it consists of situated improvisations, field recordings, and uh, these site-specific works that I've been doing uh, over the past 10 years. And it's spread all around the globe. There are, you know, recordings from the Rocky Mountains in Canada. There is from, uh, I have a recording of uh, Lama uh, uh, that was, uh, I was in this monastery in Tibet, in, in a Tibetan monastery in Nepal, sorry. Um, and uh, there is something from Tasmania in Australia. There's something from the Swiss Alps. Uh, there's something from Lofoten in uh, Norway. So all these travels that I've been on is connected in this long piece uh, that I, for the first time in my life, also did some overdubs to. So I took that material and, and used it as compositional building blocks and then uh, made a few uh, overdubs with uh, my percussions uh, here in, in my little studio. And it's very inspired by this uh, filmmaker called Ron Frick, who makes these wonderful uh, non-narrative films, most famous, I think, are Baraka or Samsara, which is, you know, everyone should go and watch these. I mean, some of them are even on YouTube <laughs> um, because it's, uh, that's really what I'm doing here. You know, you're, you're jumping from one scene in the world to the other. They, they're all somehow connected, but they're also jumping over the years. You know, there's no real, uh, no real timeline, so to speak. It's it's jumping back and forth, but there still is a, a meaning in it. And in this case, it's in a way my my career development. I look at it like that. My solo career, basically, that that kind of has been shaping itself over over itself over the the past ten years. Yeah, and we also have worked, Christian, should have disclaimed this before, but we're actually starting out a duo work together. Um, and can you tell a little bit about that from your perspective? <laughs> I'm more curious about your perspective, Henrik. <laughs> I have sleepless nights, you know. Am I fitting in? <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, I... I I'm trying to figure out when this, when we start, I mean, what the base for starting this was. Anyway, one thing that happened was that you were so kind to invite me for the Nordic Percussion Festival one year to, um, well, do a little bit what I did now, you know, talk a little bit about my work and, and perform. And also, um, uh, yeah, 
give some feedbacks in some ensembles and, and stuff like that. And I think after that, we, we decided that uh, it would be great for, for you and I also to try and work together. Um, and we uh, well started by meeting and working with different things. And, and from our uh, meetings, well, improvised also, uh, we built this, we found out this little setup because we videotaped all of them. And it, so it brings in some of the elements that I also work with compositionally. You know, how do how are we looking? What would be a great, um, you know, setup for us theatrically? I guess you could say, or you know, how do we look on stage? What would be the elements that we have? And and we realized quickly that two snare drums in front of each other, very cl in close proximity uh, to each other, was a very strong thing especially with the elements uh, you know the, the things that we were working with and then we also came up with this idea of having like a mutual uh no man's land in between uh which is a common zone that we can both uh, interact with and um we're also working with uh shadow and light very much inspired by some of your work with uh martial arts and how that's integrated in uh in uh how you integrated that in your uh, teaching and, and caution playing also. I guess that's... Yeah. Maybe what that's think? what we're doing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really like the, the, the that you say we have this, this no, no man land in the middle. It's, it is like meeting a meeting of genres, but somehow we don't feel that we are different in, in that sense when, we, when we're in, exploring the things. We're still in this very investigating part of, of our collaboration i think it's it's very inspiring the way that we come from so different worlds and still have so many of the same ideas and and i really look forward to to dive more into and, and find all these qualities and and find the the, the artistic uh, connection between it and i think we could easily play a concert now and i would think that people would be inspired by it mm. uh, but but somehow we want to develop develop it much further than that and really get into the the, the details of that nowhere land in the middle. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. And really also to an extent where, you know, now we're talking about involving a choreographer because uh, to get, you know, some feedback and perhaps some very concrete elements integrated in, in the piece that we're building also. Um, uh, to really take it seriously, you know, this this major part of a performance like that, which is how we move, <laughs> not just, you know, how does it sound, you know, how do you move to make that specific sound, but really how, you know, because there's so much music, think of it when you, when you lift the stick, I mean, the suspension, the sound that's already there is, is amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, but we also realized, you know, we, we know a lot about that, but perhaps not so much about the visual aspects of it. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm also very excited about bringing in a choreographer too. As, as, soon, as soon as we connect to sound, we have a very good impression of what works and how we want it to be. But the moment we took our movements and then didn't make sounds out of them, we were suddenly in a field further away from ourselves and i think that's that gave the idea of of integrating more things into the performance so often we have movements in a percussion performance that that makes 
it uh, makes sense for the audience and connects the performance and gives you also the, the intimate space for exploring these sounds. But somehow if we make movements that is disconnected or somehow has, has its own world, uh, we, we need somehow uh, specialists in other fields, I think, to have a look at it. But, but yeah. let's, see, let's see how it goes. Yeah, but it, it's true. It's, it, it is very exciting. I, I feel also, you know, maybe we just haven't given that enough attention because we're so focused on the sound. It, it, it's, uh, and that's what we're doing now. We found out, you know, we want to integrate this part where we are moving musically and, you know, you expect sound, but there's no sound happening. And then all of a sudden we, we look at it or hear it or see it in a different way. And um, yeah, that's, that's very interesting. And it's something also that I did in, in my career because I, that's why I went to this, this monastery in Nepal that I mentioned earlier on, because I wanted to study silence. You know, so I, I lived there in silence for a month and, and I realized exactly what you're saying now. I, I became so much more aware of my body movements and what I was communicating and, you know, and, and how awkward some of that was <laughs> and also coming from others. So, so I guess that's also what we've, we've uh, that's a part of the experiment here or the research really. Yeah, that's one of my favorite exercises when you teach pedagogic, the lesson where you can't speak as a teacher. <laughs> it really reveals a lot of, of new material and <laughs> and ways to communicate. And in a so some, true. some true way, it always happens in a good way somehow when you are in these new fields. Okay, Christian, we are coming to an end, but I have one final question. And that is, what is the most important thing you learned through your career? I, I feel like saying, you know, to listen right now, <laughs> uh, but maybe that's too easy. I, I would say something else then that's a little more fun. It's, I realized at some point that having 10% of I don't give a fuck in there makes the difference to me because I became too seriously too many times and having this element of, yeah, whatever, or, you know, it, to me, it has to be there to really reach uh, perfection or uh, the, the, the epiphany of freedom or, you know, <laughs> I hope that makes sense. So I'm trying to always invite this 10% uh, of I don't give a fuck, bring it on stage. But I still noticed that you said perfection as a final goal. And then you were <laughs> kind of aware that that was not what you meant. Yeah. So I mean, working in these areas, somehow we, we have a training that is from a world of perfection and we're diving into new fields and somehow we need to get rid of this uh, strife for perfection or how to say. Yeah. maybe well, Perfection needs to be redefined. Yes. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thanks a lot, Christian. And uh, thank you. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. I am a deadbeat repercussionist. 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 I am